when you take risks, you become confident in yourself. That enhances your sense of self-being, self, you know, who you are. And so take a new risk. That'll shape you into and continue to shape you. Like, I still have a ways to grow. I mean, there's no, again, there's no end to how far we can grow, right? So uh, wherever you are, there's no right or wrong about it. Wherever you are is okay. Like the entire journey that has brought you there. Right. Now it's up to you to say, what am I going to do with it? Okay. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Undo Anxiety Podcast. This is Dr. John Duffy. I am your host, as always, and I appreciate you protecting some time uh, for myself and my guests and for undoing some of that undue anxiety we're all suffering. I am um, excited and honored to be talking to my guest today. His name is Akshay Nanavati. Akshay, welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me here. I'm thrilled to have you here. So Akshay, I'm going I'm to talk you up for a second. Uh, <laughs> Akshay is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. He is a speaker. He is an entrepreneur, an explorer, and is the author of a book whose title I just love, and I wish I had come up with this. It's <laughs> called Fearvana, the Revolutionary Science of How to Turn Fear into Health, wealth and happiness. I'm dying to hear how this works. And somehow, knowing a little bit more about your story, Akshay, I don't even think we've scratched the surface. But, um, but, but welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thank uh, you. My bias is to go back to the start here before we get too far ahead of ourselves. Sure. From what I understand, when you were about 13 years old, which is a difficult age to begin with, you moved from India to the United States. Do I have that close? I had moved from India to Singapore uh, when I was eight, and then at Singapore to the United States at thirteen. So Got it. I moved to the U.S. at thirteen. Yep. Got it. And then, if, if, and then some hard times befell you. Is that correct? Yeah. So soon after that, I got into uh, uh, drugs and alcohol, and and really squandered away about a year and a half of my life uh-huh. with uh, with drug addiction, and I lost two friends to it as well. So I was pretty heavily immersed. I could have easily headed down that path uh, off my other two friends, and it would that could have very easily been me my, as well. And, and be- before we even go a step further, um, how, how does a guy in his teenage years, I work with a lot of teenagers and I'm a therapist, um, mm-hmm. how does a guy in his teenage years back out of that? You know, like I, when I work with a kid who's mm-hmm. deep into drug addiction for whatever reason, um, mm-hmm. to unravel that and get back out of that and, and, and function, you know, just function well, not yeah. thrive, is so difficult. Is there is there a, a magic is there a magic pill there that you're that you're aware of? It, I mean, I agree that it's difficult. Like I said, I lost friends to it. I know many yeah. of them who are still struggling in terms of like, obviously, they're not teenagers anymore, but they're not really like thriving, you know, as a result of the choices they made uh, for me. And I could have, you know, there were there many reasons for me to stop. I got caught in school. I got caught multiple times doing almost everything you can imagine. I got sent to jail for lighting a microwave on fire and, <laughs> and, one, of my, and one of my silly, you know, misspent youth incidences. So I literally got caught doing everything. I was one of the, for whatever reason, bad, you can call it bad luck or just me being really uh, uh, stupid, but none of that stopped me from doing drugs. What finally led to to me stopping was actually when I watched the movie Black Hawk Down. Uh-huh. Have you ever seen it? I have. Very powerful war movie based on a true story. And watching that movie triggered something in me that, you know, what kind of courage would it take for another human being to sacrifice their lives for their fellow human beings? And I didn't, and would I be able to do the same thing? And I still remember that evening, actually, going to watch the movie. And after that, I dropped my friend off. He had the book Black Hawk Down. I read the book. And then I started getting into book after book on military and combat. And once I got into that, almost I immediately stopped. I've never done drugs since. Uh, and I decided I want to join the military. So 
that's my story. And I guess to translate it to what the, the thing is that would have people stop, I think that, you know, from my experience, I've also heard a lot of extreme athletes often struggle with addiction or have struggled with addiction in the past. Mm-hmm. So when, when you get into that, you know, I think that, may, that that needs to be channeled somewhere. And maybe that if, you, if the people who are in it, they, they have this um, strong desire. Like for me, I've always been this person of extremes. You know, I'm not a good person with balance. And, and pushing that extreme now to something positive, something empowering. Because even once I got into the Marines, I got big time in outdoor sports. I went mountain climbing, skydiving, cave diving, ice diving. I mean, you kind of name it. I got into mount, uh, outdoor sports because I needed something to seek out that positive high, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, right. So a lot of the kids I work with, you're echoing their their words that, you know, like there's this thrill and this high and, and it's exciting, you know, and, um, and, and to... Uh, it's striking to me, you know, when I think about Black Hawk Down, Akshay, I think like, oh, that's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen, you know, <laughs> I, yeah. um, and, and <laughs> chilling and, um, you know, and, and it's, it requires so much courage. Um, and, and I think maybe a, a specific type of personality to be willing to put your life in such peril, right? I mean, um, you really have to uh, I, I figure it's one of two things. You either have a death wish, which it doesn't sound <laughs> like you have, or you you care so deeply about the goodwill of you know people on the whole that you are willing to sacrifice yourself for it. I think there's something tremendously beautiful about living in a world where the the well-being of the group matters more than your own personal well-being. And that was beautiful about the Marines. That's partly why I wanted to join. I think that, you know, there's the beauty in these experiences that when you when you tap into your own courage and you discover it, you find something within you that you didn't know you had. I mean, from going to boot camp, from coming out of a world of drugs, I wasn't the fittest person in the world in boot camp. I was fairly unfit, physically at least. Mentally, I, I did pretty good. But physically, I was very unfit. And even joining boot camp was a struggle. In fact, because I have a blood disorder. So right. two, doc- two doctors told me that boot camp would kill me. So I had to sort of fight my way into the Marines. It took about a year and a half to get into the Marines. And uh, and that was challenging. But at that point, I was so convinced this was my path. And when I found my co- my abilities, my capacity to, to do something great, I wanted more of that. I wanted to seek that out. And that's the beauty in these experiences. And in, even in some to some degree going to war, like if you take away the politics and sort of the horrors of war, you're actually living in a, in a world where you get to where you're, there's constant camaraderie. You're doing something meaningful. You're in service of something greater. And those kind of things are beautiful and fairly addictive, which is why a lot of people struggle when they come back from it. Yeah, um, they're, they're, I'm trying to think of the movie um, with the where, where um, Bradley Cooper was the one who disarmed bombs, and he couldn't he couldn't stay away from Iraq. He had to get back there. You, I don't know if you remember this movie, but you know, like um, uh, the the Hurt Locker is the, yep, is the yep. name. And I haven't seen that one, but I I, I know of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he had to. You know, it, it was uh, it, it was so important to him to use that skill that he had as well. Um, but I think also inspired, uh, that character was inspired in part by what you're talking about, this, this, um, the beauty of not war, but of being in a world where um, collaboratively we are working so hard mm-hmm. to make the world a better place. And is that mm-hmm. what the Marines was for you? It was. It absolutely was. You know, I mean, obviously, I got some dis- disillusioned a little bit about the nature of the politics involved because I didn't believe in the politics of the war. And even just being out there disillusioned about following orders that you have to follow no matter how 
really stupid they were and uh, i mean they could have easily gotten us killed but we had to follow him so that kind of stuff obviously turned me off about the whole experience and ultimately why i got out but that was definitely a huge part of it was was that world of, of serving in something and there's definitely an intensity when you're when like when your life is on the line life is very simple you know mm-hmm. when when you're when all you have to worry about is living and dying there's a simplicity to life that you don't get in sort of the 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 norm the normal kind of mundane existence you know and there's a beauty to that simplicity there's a beauty to the high that comes from it uh, which is why I started seeking it out in other ways as well, whether it be mountain climbing or skiing across polar ice caps, because there's really a beauty in that simple world where there's just one mission and you really it's so intense that, you know, you could die doing these things. And there's there's uh, immense control you get about your sense of self, your world, the courage you discover within yourself. And it's a it's a tremendously spiritual experience. To hear you describe it, it sounds beautiful in a way I've never, <laughs> ever thought of before. Honestly, <laughs> were other were some of your other, uh, um, you know, people in your unit, were they, did they feel the same way? Like, do you feel like this is kind of like a universal feeling in the military or do you feel, because this feels so unique to you and you've got this spirit that's kind of indomitable. Um, Do you feel like there's some universality to it? Do you feel like that's part of what draws people to service like this? I think so. I don't know if everybody would maybe articulate the way I'm putting it. And right. partly because I was a sort of a philosophy major. I read books on psychology. So I'm always over, potentially even overthinking things. But <laughs> so I think <laughs> about things in these ways. But I think that that's the draw for sure. I mean, I know a ton of us when we came back, we struggled with being back. We volunteered to go try to go back out there. A buddy of mine kept saying, OK, let's just go back to Iraq and Afghanistan because or Iraq or Afghanistan because it was in some ways easier than being in this world, you know. Wow. So uh, so I think a, a lot of us felt that. But again, it becomes a challenge for i mean there's not a lot of people who thrived out there for sure i mean even in me initially i hated my life out there i mean because no matter what there is adversity but it's it's like I, I didn't expect it to be easy but i sort of had a sense a naive sense of what i was wanting this war to be and it never is going to be whatever you're expecting what you want it to be and uh, and as a result you know i learned to shift my attitude while i was in iraq but when i came back you know i struggled like many did but um obviously i've overcome that and that's what led to this concept of fearvana but i have others who didn't overcome that i a junior marine of mine from the war shot himself in the head when we got back so is that right mm-hmm Wow, you really uh, so, have lost some people you've been close to in some of the things, some of the, some of the struggles you've been through. Absolutely. I mean, I lost a friend of mine in Iraq before I left. Uh, before I even left, he was actually like, I mean, my closest buddy in the unit. We had volunteered to go together every chance we got because, again, we had come to the unit with this desire to go out there and experience the intensity of combat, not like in a war junkie sense, but just right. to do something meaningful to really like to, to, I mean, that's why we joined. That's why we were infantry. And, uh, one summer while I was vacationing in India, he ended up going, I didn't go with him and he didn't come back. So I've, to this day, I have, I feel guilty about having lost him out there that I should have gone with him and I should have died instead of him. In fact, I have now a poster up on my wall saying with a picture of him and it says, this should have been you earned this life. Oh. So I've learned I've learned now to channel my guilt into into purposeful action, but for a long time, my guilt drove me into some very dark places. <laughs> but but you also find some inspiration from the people you have lost, huh? Like that that you know, like hey, I'm I, um, I have the luxury of drawing breath here still after all exactly. I've been through, and so I need to that there, there's a mandate affiliated with that. Is that close? 
Absolutely, there is. I think you honor their death by. I mean, it's it's. That's why I have that saying. That saying this should have been you earned this life. It's not on me to waste this anymore. I've been mm-hmm. gifted this life. Uh, I, I, it's 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 up to me now to do something meaningful with it. Not drown myself in pints of vodka like I once did. You know, right? And uh, <laughs> and so to say that this is this is this is this gift I've been given. I mean, actually, only I. You know, just strangely, I just found out a few months ago in my ten year anniversary from Iraq. I went and visited some of my Marine buddies from Louisiana, and my staff sergeant, who was our squad leader in in the in the war told me that our vehicle had drove over an active ied which is an improvised explosive device and for whatever reason it just didn't explode like i guess for whatever reason and, and i didn't know this till 10 years after the war wow. so it was, it was even this crazier thing to find out that 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 suddenly i'm hearing this that you really think that you know okay maybe i've been blessed with this life for something and it's up to me no longer to really waste it and there's there's a there's a true gift in embracing your mortality and yes. i'm not saying everybody needs to sort of go on to the verge of death to embrace your mortality it can be as simple as really being present to it really thinking about this and i'm not saying live every day as your last because if you did like i wouldn't work that hard because i'd just be wanting to you know if my last tomorrow is genuine my last day i probably wouldn't grind out some of the things that i have to grind out in terms of work so it's not in that sort of cliche sense it's in the sense of truly being present to the fact that one day you will die and like visualize yourself on your deathbed i mean even steve jobs said that remembering that i'll be dead soon is the most valuable tool i've used to make the important decisions in my life so mortality is a gift no and and the and the um the urgency that that brings um i can tell that you make really really good use of that um and that you you act with a degree of urgency because you've done an awful lot in the decade since you left iraq i know this um there, there's I, I, I this is a little off topic and and i've never asked anybody who served this before there's this part of me that sincerely wants to thank you for your service um and i Always worry that that sounds patronizing or routine or something. How how would that how does that sound to you when people say it? I, it's funny that you mentioned that. I don't hear often people sort of thinking it from that perspective, and I appreciate that. You know, I mean, I I appreciate the gesture, mm-hmm. so I don't sort of uh, overthink it. I mean, like I appreciate the gesture. I know where it's coming from when somebody says, because I get it, of course, a lot. Thank you for your service, and I say, so, you know, I appreciate. Thank you for saying that because I, I get where a person's coming from, but. I also get what you mean that in the sense that, you know, I don't, I think many, many of the Marines I know, the good, especially like the good ones, they're not always the best Marines out there, but we don't, I don't like to be called a hero or anything like that. Like, you know, when, I mean, like, I, I'll give you an example. I, I once marched in the John Bassalone Day Parade in, in uh, New Jersey here. Okay. And, and we were, we were in our dress blues. And after that, my family was going to take me out to lunch. And I refused to go out in my dress blues because I did not want to be acknowledged for my service. I did not want to be thanked for being this Marine. You go out in your dress blues, I mean, you're going to be thanked anywhere, anywhere oh, yeah. you go, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't want that because, so in some ways, because most of us feel like, you know, that we didn't do enough out there. Uh, I know Marines who've sacrificed so much more than me, including a, a, including my friend who died in war. I know guys who've done so many more heroic things in war than, than me. And so there's this thing if I don't like, you know, being thanked for being a quote unquote hero in the war. Cause I wasn't a hero. I just went out there and did what I had to do. But I, and I'm not trying to say this to be again, cliche or humble. I truly wasn't a hero in the war at all. I did just did my job the best I could. And I didn't, you know, it didn't, there was nothing heroic about what I did. Uh, and so it's, it's hard being when you get acknowledged for it, but when people just say, thank you, I appreciate, you know, I don't overthink it in that sense. I appreciate right. their gesture and kind of, okay, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from and I can respect that. Well, and I and I I'm gonna I'm, I will gently disagree um, only with the idea the word hero I I, um, I I like that word because I think I like to have people that like to look up to and I think putting your life on the line 
um, knowingly, even if it's for a war that you know is complicated enough that you may not um, buy into every element that brings you there, um, that's 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 a pretty big deal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so thank you for your service. I think I, I think we'll leave no, that part of that. I, I do I do appreciate you saying that. As yes. I say. yes. And one thing too one thing too about that is I've learned to and more recently to sort of own my story. And in many ways, you know, I wouldn't share it the way I'm sharing it now. Any of this many many facets of my story. But a friend once told me that your story is not just yours. It's 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 equally the part of the, the lives you can touch. I mean, if somebody hearing this, you know, gets out of let's say a part where they were thinking about suicide, that then my story is their story, right? Like that my yes. story is equally theirs because it touched their life in such a deep way. And when I thought about it that from that point of view, it was a, a beautiful thing to realize that it's in service of something greater. And that that was one element that transformed my ability to share my own story. And the other was realizing that I don't have to compete with other, you know, as I mentioned, I know veterans who've done a lot more than me, mm -hmm. but any, any category I put myself in, okay, I'm a runner. There's runners who are better than me. I'm an entrepreneur. There's entrepreneurs who are better than me. Whatever category I put myself in, there's always going to be somebody better. But I realized then that it's not about competing with that other person, but just being better than who I was yesterday. Yes. Right. So coming from those two angles allowed me to be more, uh, be more vulnerable, be more open about sharing my story and ultimately really owning it within myself as well. So I don't think I was a hero in the war and I know there's veterans who've done more, but I'm still proud of the fact that I did serve now and I can openly say that I served and this is what I did. And you know, there's people who've done more, but that is, it is what it is. This is just what I did. Makes, makes perfect sense. I love every element of that. I, I like that you own your story. I mean, part of the reason I started this podcast, um, and, and I, at one point I shifted the name from the Dr. John Duffy podcast to undo anxiety in, in part because I, I, a recognition that we all have these stories and, and we hold them so close to the vest. And once we open up and share them, we realize, oh, Somebody else is going to benefit from this. Somebody else is going to relate to this, and the more and there's less taboo affiliated with what I'm going through here, or what he or she is going through here. Um, so I am super grateful to you for sharing your story and for reconfiguring um, things like PTSD. You know, like um, uh, which I would love to, if you're if you're willing to talk a little bit about next, because that seems like part of the next part of your story. You at one point were diagnosed with PTSD, yeah? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was actually a few years after the war that I was diagnosed with PTSD uh, with, from the VA. My wife and I were going through some personal struggles, so she finally sort of pushed me to go uh, to, the, to the doctor uh, to, to get it kind of checked out, and then that's when they diagnosed me a few yeah. years after the war. Right, and, um, and, and, and the metric for PTSD, I can't imagine that there were many people you served with who wouldn't meet the diagnostic criteria <laughs> for, for, that, <laughs> for that particular disorder, right? Exactly. And yes. I couldn't, yep. And that's why I, I, you know, in my learnings, in my research on neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, it, it disillusioned me about the whole thing about how easily we throw that label around and just the true nature of post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic stress disorder. And they're not the same. <laughs> yes. Right, right, right. Do you mind speaking more to that? Because I like Absolutely. where you're threading the needle here. <laughs> Absolutely. I definitely, uh, definitely want to share more about that. So I'll give you an example. So when I got back, you know, in, in their diagnosis of like, 
when they labeled me with this dis- with, that I have this disorder, some of the things they they asked me to ass- ultimately assign this label was, you know, do I do I get jumpy with loud noises? And I was like, of course, you know, yes, I do. Do I like crowds? No, I don't. I was nervous around crowds. Sure. And this to them was symptoms of a disorder. As I started doing more research about it and learning about the brain, it was it was silly to me that they assigned this as a disorder because I lived in a world in seven months in a war zone that's emotionally activating. And as I'm sure you know more about this than even I do, but when the brain is emotionally activated, it it, it targets the memory more. It implants the memory in your amygdala, in your subconscious, right? In your Absolutely. Implicit, in your implicit memory. So my brain just learned to say loud noises equals death. That's not a disorder. That's a natural, normal human response to war. Absolutely. It's post-traumatic stress, but it's not a disorder. Same thing like the crowds. I mean, you're in a, if you're in a war zone, a crowd could be in a bunch of people who would kill you. Inevitably, you're not going to want to like to be in crowds, right? Because your brain has created that implicit memory that crowds can equal death. Evolutionary speaking, that's what your brain is tar- you know, keeping you sur- alive, right? Right, right. So, it's, it an really adapt- it's an adaptive response, not a maladaptive exactly. response, right? Exactly. It's what you need. It's survival. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so when I started learning all of this, I sort of said that I don't have a disorder. I might have symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but that's not a disorder. It's a normal human response. And I get to choose what I want to do with that response because the problem is when we label it with disorder, and I see this with a ton of my veteran friends, then they start thinking there's something wrong with me. And then what happens it is fuels this downward spiral that every time something happens, oh, it's because I have a disorder that this thing is happening, which fuels it further and further down, and they're not able to step outside of it instead of saying, you know what, I don't have a disorder. This is just my brain responding to an experience of war, but I am not my brain and my brain is not me. I can be something more. I can be what I consciously choose to be. I mean, even it's the same thing with survivor's guilt. You know, everybody told me don't feel guilt, but I think when you live in a world where the good of the group matters more than your own individual well-being, inevitably you're going to feel that kind of feeling. I mean, I don't know a veteran, especially the good ones. There are Marines who are not the best, but all every good veteran, every veteran I know who's truly an amazing human being feels like they didn't do enough in the war. Every single mm-hmm. one of them feels like they know who, who suffered more. They feel guilty about it for not having done enough. And I know guys who've been shot and they still feel like they haven't done enough. Wow. I know a guy who ran into a burning Humvee to save a fellow Marine still feels like he hasn't done enough. So that feeling is inevitable, but it doesn't mean you have a disorder. It just means you're you're a good Marine. You're a human being responding to this this environment, to this experience that you've been you know, cultivated in you that you've, you've created such a self-attachment to, but learning to shift all of that is ultimately what had me say, put like, put that poster up on my wall of my friend and say, okay, my guilt can be an ally. You know, the fact that I'm jumping loud noises is not a disorder. I'm not going to, I'm going to refuse that label and I'm going to create a new one. I mean, ultimately that's what led to this concept of fearvana and, and all of these things are just natural responses and I get to choose what I want to do with the response. I, I, I think this is, um, such a critical, distinction here between like post-traumatic stress. Yes, I experienced that, but that is an adaptive response to Mm -hmm. an unusual circumstance versus disorder, you know, and this is, this is an issue definitely. And I, and I think you, you stated this pretty clearly with my profession, with, with psychology and psychiatry Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and there are so, so many good people who believe there is something terribly wrong with them and they become mm-hmm. patients perpetually, right? So they are in therapy forever or in, in a VA hospital forever or they're mm-hmm. medicated for a lifetime for for something that, you know, you you at some point, somewhere in, in, in what I read about you, you said war and trauma um, don't lead to disorder. That's the wrong way to conceptualize it. They actually lead to growth. So, you know, exactly. like that, that kind of turns everything on its head and says, you know, like this, this is something you can channel. This is not something you are afflicted with, right? This is not, mm-hmm. the, and then it's certainly not an end game of your mm-hmm. well-being. 
And, and I think that's so important to state. Yeah, absolutely. And partly because we live in a world that cultivates this belief system. I mean, everybody goes to war pretty much expecting that I'm going to come back messed up in the head. You know, when I tell people I'm a veteran, there's, you know, I sometimes, yes, I'll get the thank you for your service. But there's also almost a sense of pity that, oh, man, what you must have experienced, there's something wrong with you. You know, like right. there's this feeling like that there's a sense of pity. And, 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 and most people thought that most of us veterans almost expected that we're going to come back. And, you know, Dr. Marty, Martin Seligman, the lead, who I'm sure you have heard of and leading researcher in the positive psychology movement, sure. he, he did this great study in West Point where he went there and asked people, how many of you have heard of PTSD? And like, I think it was like 90 plus percent said yes. He asked them, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic growth? And it was less than 10 percent. So the problem was it became the self-fulfilling prophecy. We don't even know of post-traumatic growth. We, if we start to believe that trauma equals growth, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a positive way. But right now we don't. I mean, we think that war will mess, up, mess us up in the head, and inevitably it does. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it makes me think about um, the nature of anxiety. So um, in, in the big book of mental disorders, which is way too big, it's bigger than your Bible, um, PTSD <laughs> is listed under anxiety disorders, and they're all disorders, right? They're, so mm -hmm. it's not like, oh, there's this well of energy, which anxiety in the end, if you think about what the nature of it is, there's this well of energy that is untapped. My It's surging through my body. And if I can find a way to channel this appropriately, mm -hmm. usefully, then then maybe this is my gift. This is something, I, you know, this is what I can use. That's why I'm so curious to hear what Fearvana is all about and, <laughs> um, and, and, and how you even came up with the idea of it. Yeah, so I define fearvana as the bliss that results from engaging our fears to pursue our own worthy struggle. And, you know, fear is the most, as Dr. Joseph Ledeau, the, one of the leading neuroscientists in fear and anxiety, says fear is the most primal emotion because our brain al always thinking is this thing's going to kill us. And, you know, as a result, it responds with fear. But as you know, of course, fear, stress, and anxiety are neurologically very similar. So, the, so you can use whatever label you want, but that's how I define fearvana. And my wife actually coined the term. And when she did, I was like, that's pure goal. Like that's going to be everything now oh is, 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 is fearvana yes. because there's, there's bliss through fear. I mean, in order to grow, you need to do something you've never done before. You need to pursue uh, the unknown. You know, that's how you grow psychologically, spiritually. I mean, even physically, you work your body out, you put your body under stress. And it's the same way with, uh, with, with the mind and the spirit. You have to stress yourself out. I don't think uh, there's another uh, leading research. I was it selling or something. Somebody else who said that you know a stress-free life is not the good life. A, li a good the good life is one with stress, with challenge, with anxiety. Because if you're going to pursue anything worthwhile, it's going to be hard. That's why I say your own worthy struggle. And your right. own worthy struggle could be anything. It could be building a business, running a marathon, climbing a mountain, writing a book, whatever it is. But whatever you choose to pursue, it will be hard. And that's not a bad thing, though. There's beauty in that struggle. If you choose to, if you once you learn how to embrace it, and ultimately, Fiervano is about helping people embrace their struggle. Because this is another problem that I see so much in society. Society, and you can see my passion about this. So forgive the rants, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you are a passionate man. I appreciate it. <laughs> but you know, the big problem I see in society is that every everything we we now look at progress is this thing to make our life easier. You know, this new technology to try to make our lives easier. But easier is not better. And I'm seeing so many kids struggle as a result. Just the other day, I was working with this kid who had just graduated college. You know, working a job he didn't really enjoy and wanted to start his own business. Was trying to figure out what it would be, but realized obviously it would be hard. And as we were talking, he at one point. He said to me, so you mean there's no such thing as a stress-free life? 
And I said, no, like, but the thing is, that's what he was seeking, right? He wanted this easy life and it just never, and I've worked with another client who said, I just want easy. And inevitably he was struggling in every single way because whatever path he wanted to choose, if you work a job that you don't like, it's going to be hard. If you quit that job to start a business, it's going to be hard. He was in a relationship that he wasn't fully comfortable with. If he quits it, it's hard because you're lonely. If you stay in it, it's also hard. So what, what is your worthy struggle? Find it, embrace it and commit to it. And there's beauty in that challenge. And anybody who's achieved greatness in any endeavor has struggled to get there and I think they'll say the exact same thing and maybe just in their own words. You know, Akshay, I, I, I love that and um, and, and I, I, anybody who's listening, give that a listen. Really hear what Akshay is saying here because you know, there is, there is no joy in a stress-free life. There is no achievement. There is no, there is no self-worth. Um, and there's no worth in a stress-free life. So, mm-hmm. so we, we have culturally created the wrong goal in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I agree with you wholly there. Now, you said something <laughs> earlier a moment ago. You know, the idea that, that um, immersion in fear, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing a little bit, Mm-hmm. That there, that there is on the back end of that, there is bliss. Now, not mm-hmm. hardly anybody listening served with you in <laughs> Iraq, you know. Um, but but most everybody has had some degree of anxiety, and mm-hmm. a, a lot of people are thinking, "Oh, I don't think so." Like you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I I do not, I don't feel the bliss. I just feel the fear, and my inclination isn't to go toward it and achieve something. My inclination is to pull up the covers and wait for it to pass and just, you know, mm-hmm. and hope that one day I feel better or maybe a Xanax or maybe, you know, yep. Zoloft or so, you know what I mean, right? Or, or some, right, some yeah. deep therapy and EMDR. Something's going to make me feel better. But what this guy's talking about, I don't know if I can, I can buy into that. Can you, can yeah. you speak to those um, naysayers? Absolutely. Absolutely. The big problem there is because, again, we live in a world that tells us we should be fearless. I mean, how many times do you say you hear things where somebody will say be fearless or don't be scared of something or, you know, or eliminate stress and, you know, uh, you assign disorder towards anxiety. So we've labeled all these emotions as negative. When I say emotions like fear, stress, anxiety, guilt, people think of them as negative emotions. You know, they're not positive by any stretch of the imagination. And that is the problem. Like a small example to clarify this. I worked with this client who said, I'm just waiting for the fear to go away so I can quit my job to start my business huh. because he he thought that the fear meant he was weak he thought everybody who's done it had been fearless because right. how many other quote-unquote experts say you should be fearless right yep. and inevitably the problem was not his fear which I told him I was like your problem is not that you're you're afraid like you're waiting for that fear to go away that's your problem it's very normal to feel afraid to quit a job to start a business but when you stop judging your fear when you stop judging any emotion and realizing that every emotion is not good or bad they are no bad or good emotions. They're just emotions. Mm-hmm. And you get to decide what you do with it. When you do that, fear becomes your ally. Like Sir Richard Branson said, it's important not to fear fear not to fear fear because fear is fuel and fear is energy. And it's and that's a beautiful thing that he said. Another quick study that shows this beautifully, they took a bunch of people who were scared of public speaking and they had half the group say things like, I'm calm, I'm calm, I'm calm. The other half say things like, I'm excited, I'm excited. And the group that eliminated the fear by trying to calm it down performed far worse to third-party objective viewers than the group that enhanced their fear by saying, I'm excited. And that's what fear is. I mean, in the book, I talk about the chemical cocktail of fearvana because when you pursue novelty, which is why we, we crave novelty anyway, right? Like when human beings want to seek out new things, whether it be as simple as traveling to a new place or climbing a mountain in, in the Himalayas, whatever it may be, that it actually releases things like dopamine in your brain. Yeah. It releases a chemical called anandamide, which is, comes from the Sanskrit word anand, which literally means bliss. So, you know, that's fearvana translates to this experience of bliss and anybody who pursues it 
actively will tell you the same thing, you know, that it's often, I mean, it's not always blissful sometimes when you're in it. So for example, if I'm running an ultra marathon, there's moments of pure hell where I'm like just hating my life and I'm miserable, but there's absolute beauty in that entire spectrum of that experience. I mean, that's why I keep doing it, you know, even where where I'll go through a moment where I'll say, this is the worst thing I'm ever doing. Why am I doing this? As soon as I come back from that run, I'll be planning the next one because part of it is on a neurological level, what it does to you, but also on a spiritual level, when you discover that you have the ability to pursue, to overcome that part of you that wants to quit and then you say, I want to fight. There's something deeply powerful about that. I mean, even the largest study on happiness by Professor Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote this great book called Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience. Great book. He said, absolutely, right? I Like one of my favorites, uh-huh. it was one of the core books for my own research. He said that the best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur when a person pushes his body and mind to their limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. And this was after years on research on happiness from people of all walks of life all across the world. So that's what Fearvana is about, is finding that worthy struggle. Like he says, it's a voluntary effort and pursuing that. And it leads to growth in every sense and, of course, just happiness as well. So you are not uh, – so people listening to your energy, I hear the juice that you've got for life, this zeal. <laughs> and, um, and you are not a fearless man. I don't hear you saying, hey, I'm fearless. That's what Fearvana is all all about is like lacking all fear altogether. I hear a guy who's saying, no, 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 I feel the fear. I I do the thing anyway. If I'm afraid of it, I'm I'm more inclined to do it. And and the fear is is that energy that gets me to do it well, like the public speakers. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm not at all fearless. And it's funny, you know, I've done a few talks where somebody said, how are you so fearless? Because they hear what I do. And I said, I'm not. I do these things because they scare me. I mean, even writing my book was a terrifying experience. (laughs) The whole time I'm wondering, are people going to like it? Is it garbage? Is it any good? But you know, what I learned through that and through Iraq as well, where, which is a scary experience, of course, too, is that fear propels you to prepare. When you're scared, then you can analyze that fear. You can say, what am I scared of? Okay, what's the worst case scenario if this fear happens? What can I do to prepare for that worst case scenario? So when you rise outside of your fear, which is fairly simple, like literally just labeling your emotion. Neuroscience has shown that when you label an emotion, it reduces activity in your emotional parts of your brain and increases activity in the part of your brain related to focus and awareness, the prefrontal cortex. Right. So when, when you stop and label your emotion, you can then step out of it and you can say, okay, this is not me. This is just my brain reacting. What can I do with this? And then you can analyze it and you can choose to say, I'm going to embrace this fear. And that's what I constantly do. I mean, I feel fear all the time, though. Almost everything I do is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that little bit of emotional intelligence, that, that ability to say, this is fear. I feel fear, uh, but I'm okay. You know, right? is, there, is there kind of a fundamental, like, I know that I will be okay and I'm going to forge forward? Or is that is that not something you know going in? You know, I think that you sometimes pursue things with the with if you know if you know exactly what's going to happen, then it then it's a little it's a little less exciting. So I think having on <laughs> un, having uncertainty is a good thing. But you have to build your way up. You know, when I was a kid, I used to be scared of Ferris wheels. So I was by no means the person that I am today <laughs> in terms of my ability to engage fear. Right. So where, wherever you are, like work your way up the ladder of risk, the ladder of fear, one step at a time. I call it the zone of fearvana, and find your zone. And there's no right zone. Everybody's zone is different. You know. Uh, like when I went climbing with my wife, we went on a scramble. She was deathly afraid. I was not even close to scared. Not because I'm braver, only because my brain had more references than hers when it came to that particular fear. It required more intensity on my part to engage, to, to feel that fear than hers. If she did that enough, the same thing. That 
that particular experience would no longer generate the fear response, you know? Right. So wherever you are, just work your way up with it. And there's techniques you can do, like isolating yourself from the fear, as I mentioned, that to understand it, uh, visualizing yourself engaging the fear. Yep. So uh, unlike the law of attraction stuff, which says visualize yourself all happy on the other side of it, actually visualize yourself engaging the obstacle. And plenty of studies have shown that's a far more be- that's a far more effective way to handle the obstacle. So for example, before a long run, I always visualize myself hitting a low point and I know it'll inevitably happen. And I visualize myself rising above it that's a great way to engage your engage a fearful experience uh and i think the most important is just simply saying that this fear is not a bad thing and i can embrace it i can channel it into something useful and that's and that i think is what people maybe struggle with the most do do you find actually that your your fear diminishes over time you know as, as you engage in something you're a public speaker or as you write more or as you run more um do you feel like you have more agency over it or do you feel like nope i just keep going and i i turn the law of attraction on its head and i envision that low point and i envision myself conquering that I think it requires more to feel uh, the same degree of fear as you keep pushing as your sort of your zone of fearvana expands. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the fear goes away. I mean, for me, every time I do a long run, there's fear. So it's, you know, many workouts I do, there's fear. I train with this gym called Jim Jones, where their whole ethos is about embracing the art of suffering. And when you go into the gym, the the guy running the gym will say that having the fear before the workout is part of the reason why they do it. It's like he'll scare you when you go in there about how hard the workout's going to be in the afternoon. Uh And that's very much part about it because he said the working out is not just about lifting a dumbbell and the physical growth. It's mostly about the mental and spiritual growth. Sure. So I think it just takes more to feel fear, but it never goes away. It's always going to be hard to engage it. And you know, I'm a human being. There's moments where I get, I don't listen to my own advice and I get lost in, in, in all of it, but, but I'm much better. <laughs> I'm much better about stopping, pausing, and at least quicker than I used to be about saying that, okay, wait, you know, let's listen to the things that I'm teaching others and, uh, and, and not judge my, like, I mean, I'll give you an example to make it tangible again. I sometimes feel scared of being alone in the house, which is crazy, right? Like I'm in a comfortable house compared to everything I've done. And so I would beat myself up. Like, what's wrong with you? Why are you scared of this? Mm. You've done so much more stopping a baby. And then I'd remember to myself that, okay, I don't control what first shows up in my brain. I'm going to stop judging my emotion. I'm just going to say it's okay for me to be scared wherever wherever fear shows up, even if it's just because I'm alone in the house, and not judge it. And immediately by not judging, I can pause. I can breathe that fear in, and then I can say, okay, cool. I'm scared. So be it. You know, like I'm not going to judge this fear. Now, what am I going to do with it? I and love then, that. I love a, I love that I, idea of just not just, <laughs> you know just not judging the emotion, exactly. just experiencing it. That's the biggest problem is most people judge all their emotions. Every time they feel fear or something, they think there's something wrong with them or like this is doing the same thing that I do. Like what, what's wrong with you? Why are you feeling scared in this? Trying to say like stop being a baby, you know, calm down or all that kind of stuff. And I do that self-talk from time to time. I'm, like I said, I'm much better now about noticing it and stopping it and saying, you know, okay, it's cool to just feel whatever you're feeling. Now what am I going to do with it? <laughs> right, 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 right. And, and speaking of which, so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the name of your book and, you know, you talk about you know, turning fear into health, wealth, and happiness. And you've, you've mentioned running a number of times here. Mm-hmm. And um, if, I, if I've read your biography properly, you're, you're on a particular running mission. Um, that that <laughs> I, I am very curious to hear, you know, what that's about and, and why, because it seems wildly ambitious. And if there's, yeah. um, if there's any point where, which I'm going to say, you know, Akshay, this is crazy. This might be the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so this mission is a sort of a lifelong mission to run across every country in the world. Man. And it's 
It's <laughs> it's one of those things that I don't know if I'll accomplish it or when I'll accomplish it, but it doesn't matter. It's more about the journey than the ultimate destination of doing it. I mean, even if I die having done 50 countries, I'd be pretty happy. You know, that's yes, absolutely. <laughs> <So> it's, <laughs> it's about the journey. Of, I've done eight so far and the journey has been absolutely tremendous. It's been so beautiful. Even having done eight, I kind of put a pause on it to finish my book and everything, but next sure. year I, I definitely want to get back into it. That's really where I thrive the most. Hence, you've heard me talk about it a lot. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in fact, even writing my book, I sometimes used to procrastinate on writing by going to run a marathon. Like I would just go run a marathon on the weekend and say, I'll do that. And because marathon was for me, was easier than sitting on my computer writing. So <laughs> wow. Wow. It's <laughs> yeah. all relative, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. But that's part of this lifelong mission that I've come up with now to give myself Something worthy to engage in. I think we all need a self goal, and we need a greater than self goal. So, some in, in most, you know, if you if you tap into both those within a goal, uh, you can give yourself that that worthy struggle, you know. And this is yeah. mine. That's that that inspires me. It's been inspired by outside references because that's how we find what I call your spark moment. You know, I mean, like for me. We all like to. How do you find your path to Fearvana? How do you find what you what your worthy struggle is? It initially comes from a spark moment. So for me, Black Hawk Down was a spark moment that led to the, joining the Marines. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a great researcher, Daniel Coyle, who wrote this book, The Talent Code, where he talks about how any any greatness, you know, whether it be a basketball player, a violinist, a chess player, it started with this external spark moment, which obviously makes sense, right? Because we're not born innately conditioned to say, "I want to play basketball" or write no, a book, right. or whatever. Right. We kind of figure that out as the journey happens, right? So I, so when I learned about this nature of these spark moments, I started consciously seeking them out because I got into ultra running in the first place from this book, Ultra Marathon Man by Dean Carnassus. And then, uh, and then I started, when I learned about how these spark moments work, I started consciously looking for them to ignite one. And I read about this ultra marathoner, Pat Farmer, who ran from the North Pole to the South Pole, averaging about two marathons a day in 11 months, Wow, which is just mind-blowing feat of human mind endurance. Yeah, and that just triggered the spark moment for me saying, hey, if he can do that, I can do something cool too and, and something seemingly impossible. And, and that triggered this desire. <laughs> Akshay, do you, feel like, do you feel like we are, as human beings, relatively limitless? I absolutely believe we're limitless. I think that the limits we set within ourselves are purely in our own mind. You know, like Pat Farmer, for example, he talks about in his book when he was trying to get sponsors for this expedition, people just thought it was stupid. They said, there's no way you can do it. Right. But he went out, we went out there and did it, you know? And the beauty is that until the day we die, we can keep pushing the line of what's possible. And I mean, you'll see pe people pushing in any single, and any, any and every endeavor. I mean, the, the the marathon, that guy almost broke the new record for the marathon, right? Uh, uh, what was it? I think it was a, the, the two-hour marathon yep, or something like yep. that. Yeah. And then, the, you know, there's constantly world records being broken in every particular endeavor. In the mountaineering fields, people are doing crazier things. Uh, uh, Killian Jornet just ran up Everest in like 17 hours, you know? Right. So the line of what's possible keeps being stretched by getting these outside references and ultimately just sometimes creating your own, you know? Like when the first guy climbed Everest without oxygen, doctors told him it would kill him and it would be impossible. But Reinhold Mesner went up there and did it anyway, you know? Same thing with the four minute mile. People said it was impossible. Then Roger Bannister did it, and then eventually a lot more people started doing it because now the belief became this, oh, that it's possible I can do it. Right. So I think that we can stretch our imagination to no end on what we are capable of. How do you conceptualize failure, you know, perceived or actual? Mm -hmm. 
I think it's just, I think it's obviously inevitable. I think if you're not experiencing those butterflies in your stomach, you're not engaging a moment where, where you're going to struggle. Uh, you know, like, yeah, failure is if you, if you have a goal and you don't hit it, that could be a failure. But to me, it's, it's just this, it's, it's just a standard process of achieving a goal. You know, like you can't go through anything worthwhile without hitting a low moment, without experiencing a failure. I mean, I've experienced a ton in my life, uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and that's just, I, I think it just reframes your perception when you don't think of it as like this negative thing. I mean, like a quick example, when I was reaching out to people to get endorsements for my book, you know, I eventually managed to get a forward from the book from, from his holiness, the Dalai Lama. My just goodness. Huge, okay. Huge blessing, as you can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but now in the process to get that, I got a ton of people who said no. And that could be a failure, but the truth is, if I didn't make 50 different asks, I wouldn't have gotten 20 yeses. Even though I might have gotten 30 no's, I got amazing yeses. I mean, from the Dalai Lama to Seth Godin, Jack Canfield, Marshall Goldsmith, all these like amazing human beings endorsed my book. And that was only because I took the car, like took the chance in reaching out, right? Right. But I also got a ton of no's, which nobody's going to hear about that because you're only going to see the endorsements and think that's amazing. But the truth is, I got a lot of people who said no, and that was a quote-unquote failure, but you know, it was just an, an inevitable path to getting a yes. <laughs> you know, um, so so uh, I'm I'm picturing a listener listening to you and I talking right now and thinking, well, this Akshay, there's there's something special about him. He's got some kind of spirit <laughs> that is otherworldly, and every once in a while, there's somebody who's just so charismatic and vigorous and and wants to live life to the fullest. Um, that's not me. You know, is there is yep. there a pep talk? Is there is there a way to fire that person up off the couch and into their life? You know, the one thing just to share about that, because I do get that from time to time with when people hear my story, is that I'm the poster child for making mistakes. I mean, I've shared my <laughs> drug days. I went to jail for lighting a microwave on fire. Before going to Iraq, I got crazy. I, I got two DUIs. I've been in jail three times. I mean, I'm literally the poster child for screwing up and making mistakes. So <laughs> I promise you, if I can be here, you can too. But I understand that feeling. And really, it's about learning to find, once you find that worthy struggle and you slowly start taking one step into your risks, that will build you up into this person. Again, I wasn't always like this, but the reason I now have this passion and zeal for life, this enthusiasm, this you know focus on my thing, because I found a worthy struggle that I'm channeling my energy on, but I'm also become confident to say that like I wasn't born confident. I was a very like, you know, lack of like, I had no confidence when I was a child. My friends were getting girlfriends. I was not, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, right. I was, I wasn't comfortable with anything, but when you take risks, you become confident in yourself that enhances your sense of self being self, you know, who you are. And so take a new risk that'll shape you into and continue to shape you. Like I still have a ways to grow. I mean, there's no, again, there's no end to how far we can grow. Right. So, uh, wherever you are, there's no right or wrong about it. Wherever you are is okay. Like the entire journey that has brought you there right now, it's up to you to say, what am I going to do with it? And that's really up to you it's you can say that you know you listen to hear all these other people and that's partly the challenge of social media world we only see people's successes right, right? you hear you see the, them on this all the awesomeness but it takes a lot of work to get there and so i think it's important to look at people's struggles which is why i always feel so comfortable in sharing mine because i want people to know that i wasn't this magical person who got you know it was a through struggle that i got me here so anybody listening you're probably going through some struggle and thinking that that oh he's some special person but not but i'm not like i went through struggle i overcame it i challenged myself and I push that struggle. And that's the same thing that you will do or anybody can do to get to wherever it is you want to get to and eventually keep growing. And underneath that, that I hear almost this idea, don't, don't over-idealize anybody else's story. Uh, if they're doing well, great. And if they're struggling, that's okay. And hopefully they make it through it. But your story has to be your story, right? Exactly. It's, we're not living relative lives. We're le le leading our lives 
And if we have if we have a comparison point, it ought to be ourselves, not somebody else. Absolutely. And, you know, that's the challenge, I think, with this. I think what social media can be valuable is using it as a source of inspiration. So I follow a lot of ultra runners when I'm like nervous about it, going for a run. I'll look at their pictures, watch their videos on YouTube, and then it then, then becomes a sort of inspiration for me to get out there. But use it as, as tools to better yourself in whatever your worthy struggle may be. It doesn't have to be running, of course. But yeah, just be okay with yourself and just realize the only person you need to be better than is the person you were yesterday. That's the only person you need to be better than. Absolutely. And it's not always easy. Our brain's naturally going to compare ourselves to other others. So this is also a unique thing that I've discovered because, you know, as you know, our brain operates from references, right? So for example, if I like this blender, then it's because it's in, in reference to another blender. I mean, uh, we're always comparing things to other things. That's just how our brain associates the world and creates references to the world. So inevitably we're going to compare ourselves to others. So I've had, I have a unique way, which I don't hear a lot of people talk about is sometimes compare yourself to our quote unquote lower to, pe to people who are lower than you on the X spectrum and just say, Hey, you know what? I am more advanced. Sometimes I think you need to do that to boost your self-esteem a little bit sure. because if you're going to compare yourself to all the people who are, you know, quote unquote, greater than you in whatever thing, then you're inevitably going to beat yourself up. So sometimes just say, you know what? I am a better runner than that person. And it's not to make that other person feel down. It's not like you're going out there and being a jerk to them. It's just, just, it's just acknowledging the fact that your brain is going to you're going to look for references. It's going to compare yourself because I know a lot of people, again, say don't compare yourself to others. And then it's easy to say, but everybody does it anyway, right? Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. The reality, the reality is then if you're, you're going to do it anyway, no matter what I say, so start comparing yourself also to people who you're more advanced in. And, and just, again, you're not telling them that, but just about owning your own growth, you know, and being present to that. It's a good point, right? Because we make all these down, uh, these upward social comparisons. The people we think have it better than us. Exactly. And to make a few where we're like, you know what? I think I might have a step on this guy. You know, like uh, that, 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 that can boost your esteem enough that you want to go out and take the first step, you know? Um, I love that. Actually, you are a, 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 such an inspiring guy. You, you're, I, I am fired up just talking about you. Is there any part of your message that we haven't touched on that you want to make sure that our listeners hear? I think to kind of summarize it, and I call this in the book the single most important skill you need to succeed at anything, so just to kind of put this in those terms, is to develop a positive relationship to suffering. I call it suffering. You can call it being you know, comfortable with the uncomfortable mm -hmm. or uh, challenge yourself, whatever you want to be, but suffering is a harsher word, and so the value in that is if I can say if I can suffer well, then struggle is easy or you know, difficulty is easy, challenge is easy. So I like to say develop a positive relationship to suffering. It's the single most important skill you can do because if you develop that positive relationship, not not only can you handle life when it punches you in the face, but you can also handle the struggle standing between where you are now and where you want to be. And you develop that positive relationship by, you know, by surrounding yourself by positive references around you. So looking at people like Pat Farmer who inspire me, mm -hmm. you would develop that positive relationship by visualizing yourself engaging the struggle. You do it by, um, uh, by actually finding a worthy struggle. You do it by changing your relationship to it, you know, just saying that, okay, this is not a negative thing. You also do it by working your way up struggle by one step at a time. You know, you're not going to go climb Everest tomorrow if you want to, if you want to get into mountaineering. So those are some things you can do to actually start building that positive relationship. And just one quick note, like on my gym, for example, I have this poster that says during a workout, you should think four things and it goes one, two, three, four. And number four, it's, it says that I would rather die than finish this. So, you know, <laughs> and, and at the bottom, it would say, are you working hard enough? So those kind of references are in my gym. They're all around me. And they say that this helps me say that if I am, you know, it helps me realize that struggle is the path to growth. And it, it helps me see that I need to struggle in order to be happier in order, in order to grow. So those, are references you can do in your own life to develop this positive relationship. I love that. Um, Akshay, I cannot thank you enough for joining me here. Um, you, you, every once in a while, 
uh, I usually think, well, there's nothing new under the sun. There is no new concepts. We're all reframing. We're all reframing something old. But I feel like I've learned a lot from you in this hour uh, about just the way to look at suffering and fear. And so I'm so grateful to you because I think so many people are going to benefit. And every once in a while, I think here's a guy who's doing the, exactly what he needs to be doing, and he is the right messenger for this particular message. And you feel like that guy to me. So I am um, I'm so grateful. You are, you are brilliant and inspiring. Thank you for joining me, man. Thank you so much. I'm humbled by your words. I really appreciate that. Okay, so that is Akshay Nanavati, folks, and his new book. Uh, when does your book come out, Akshay? Its official release is October 10th, and it's available on Fearvana.com. Okay, and is that where, if, I, if we want to know more about you, do we go to Fearvana.com? Yep, you can reach out to me. I definitely intend to be one of those authors that's very accessible. I respond to all my own emails, so feel free to reach out with anything, anything you're struggling with. Uh, Fearvana.com, you can find me on there as well. Awesome, awesome. The book is Fearvana, The Revolutionary Science of How to Turn Fear into Health, Wealth, and Happiness. That is Akshay Naravati. Keep your eye on this guy. I have a feeling you're going to hear more about him. This is the Undo Anxiety Podcast, folks. You can hear us on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, LiveBleedPlay.com, and WGN+. And if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, write me at johngduffy at drjohnduffy.com. Thank you and have a most excellent day.